the American Association honored one of the true titans of baseball at the All-Star Game in Chicago recently. Modern baseball as we know it today wouldn't exist without Miles Wolf. Miles Wolf was, and in my estimation, is independent baseball. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Miles is the father of independent baseball. He's created several leagues, and these leagues, you know, they were like his children, you know, whether it was the Northern League, uh, the American Association, the Can-Am League. So when you say independent baseball, you may as well just say Miles Wolf. The former publisher of Baseball America, the industry's preeminent publication, Wolf started the independent Northern League back in 1993 seeing great potential in an area that had been previously overlooked. Miles was there from the very beginning. It was Miles' idea, but it was Miles who really looked at the country and said, oh, hey, look at the upper Midwest could really use this thing called independent baseball. Simply stated, we didn't have affiliations. We had not any need to kowtow to the commissioner's office. Independent meant totally independent. Miles would later found the American Association in 2005. From humble beginnings to the thriving league we see today, played in cathedrals on pristine fields, it's all thanks to the vision of Miles Wolf. Miles has been more responsible for the changes in baseball the last 50 years than anyone else walking on the planet. He wanted to experiment. He wanted to try things in this league. Without Miles, thousands of people would be unemployed. Joy would be gone from a lot of cities. The joy that baseball brings. And the one thing that Miles built that remains today is the ability to be romantic about baseball. I, I truthfully be, believe the American Association is still the league that you can be romantic about as it relates to baseball and it's all due to Miles. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get this thing on the road, shall we? My name is Tim Hanlon. How are you, everybody? It's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We uh, welcome you back to the proceedings. And yes, we apologize for the relatively long absence. Let's put it this way. December of uh, last year was quite the month. And um, on a personal level uh, in particular, uh, and uh, lots of uh, distractions and family uh, situations and all that kind of stuff. But we have turned the page, like hopefully all of you have, uh, into a bright and hopefully sunnier uh, 2023. And uh, we appreciate you uh, sticking with us. And we are back with uh, a whole raft of good stuff for you coming up, at least in the few, first few months we've got planned already. And uh, what better way to celebrate what used to be in professional sports than in the in the wilds of, uh, of winter, uh, kind of a hearkening to what uh, awaits us literally just around the corner, and that's baseball. We all love baseball, especially as the harbinger of spring and what usually comes after spring, that being summer and the great American pastime. And um, a conversation that we had a couple of months back that we're finally able to 
bring to you, uh, and uh, and happily so, with the aforementioned, per the clip that you just heard, Miles Wolf, who is, by all accounts, uh, considered to be the father, the grandfather, the godfather, the, the, the whatever, the progenitor, the <laughs> originator of this thing we know as independent baseball. And in the minor leagues, that's a thing. Um, we all know what's been going on with the with Major League Baseball and the, I guess you could say, sort of the amalgamation of the minor leagues and, and bringing them all into a harmonious, supposedly, um, a big tent uh, with uh, Major League Baseball at the top and calling all the shots. Uh, the winnowing of teams and uh, the hollowing out, perhaps, of some of the uh, uh, the the histories of, of some of these teams, a lot of teams uh, going into new leagues that didn't even exist before and renaming and all that kind of stuff. But independent baseball, sort of that uh, that itch, I guess, um, to sort of harken back to when baseball was a little bit more, uh, shall we say, fun? Sure. Uh, certainly more uh, intriguing, a little bit more rule bending, um, and, and frankly, a little bit uh, more, I guess, uh, closer to the hue of what uh, taking the family out to the good old ball game was all about. And minor league baseball in particular is probably the best place uh, to purely enjoy that with uh, some reasonable amount of affordability. And the independent leagues, and we're talking about stuff like the Northern League from 1993 to 2010. Um, Miles Wolf was the founder of that thing. If you remember uh, that and perhaps some of the things that came thereafter, such as uh, the Can-Am League, the Canadian-American League, the American Association. Uh, of professional baseball, which still exists today. And all of those things uh, were the brainchild, either directly or uh, indirectly, by our guest this week, Miles Wolf. Um, this is a, an interesting guy uh, and and one that uh, deserves a whole lot of celebration. If you're a baseball fan and don't know the name Miles Wolf, well, uh, kick back, uh, relax, pop open a, a, a brewski or, or another sort of uh, beverage of your choice and enjoy this conversation. Baseball America, the publication that essentially is the Bible of the sport of baseball, especially in, in and around the minor leagues. Miles Wolf founded that thing way back when in the uh, in the early 1980s. I believe he took it over. We'll talk about sort of the origin story of that. But if you remember teams like the Savannah Bees, uh, the uh, Pulaski Braves, um, you know, we talk about com uh, companies, I was going to say, uh, teams like the Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks, just fascinating stories and, and various uh, uh, tales of what it means to be an independent baseball team, uh, league, a player, um, why independent baseball matters and is important. Um, the rules changes, so some of which we'll start to see in this coming Major League Baseball season, uh, where uh, some of the original ideas for things like pitch clocks uh, and um, uh, having a sort of a tiebreaker process for extra innings uh, with a man on second base and, and all these kinds of things, all these innovations, those you know largely came not because um, uh, minor leagues uh, that were associated with uh, Major League Baseball thought it'd be a fun idea. No, these ideas came from the independent leagues. And, and you heard some of the names um, who've been part of those things and, and obviously lauding all of the efforts that Miles Wolf has put into the game. Uh, Mike Veck, uh, longtime uh, owner and um, uh, son of uh, the legendary Bill Veck at the St. Paul Saints, which still exists today. Sam Katz, you heard there, uh, the uh, uh, CEO, general manager of the Winnipeg Gold Eyes, which um, was formed as part of the American Association and still exists today. Um, Joshua Schaub, you heard, 
uh, who is the uh, commissioner of the current American Association of Professional Baseball. And uh, the voice that you heard in the beginning, uh, Alex Bastiovansky, who um, narrated uh, and narrates uh, that clip that we found from the American Association on the event of Miles Wolf being the first and so far only inductee into the American Association of Professional Baseball Hall of Fame. And of course, why wouldn't he? He's the guy who helped found the darn thing, for goodness sakes. And there's a whole bunch of stuff. But this is a story that not only talks about the various teams uh, and the various leagues that he helped found, but but also things a little uh, um, perhaps on the side that you might not sort of uh, uh, recognize. For example, the Durham Bulls. If you watch Bull Durham and know that movie and the story behind that, there weren't ain't been no there would be no movie, and there would be no Susan Sarandon uh, baying her love for the game, uh, and Kevin Costner and talking about candlesticks as a nice wedding gift. It wouldn't be that story. That wouldn't be that movie without the Durham Bulls, and in particular the uh, the renaissance of the Bulls when Miles Wolf owned the team. We get into that conversation. We get into some very interesting diversions into minor league hockey. If you remember the Raleigh Ice Caps of the ECHL from 1991 to 1998, they were the team that basically uh, brought and kept professional hockey alive in Raleigh before the Carolina Hurricanes and the NHL discovered uh, that uh, perhaps a better place for hockey than apparently Hartford Connecticut and the Hartford Whalers. Don't get me started. We have a lot of episodes on that story altogether. Uh, but Miles Wolf is a, a fascinating character, and you're going to get to meet him in our conversation coming up in just a few moments. Now we're going to be talking about minor league baseball and independent baseball, but a little, a little hockey, and just kind of just uh, the, the sort of the uh, the origin stories of of why even uh, the interest in these earlier stage uh, minor league teams and and why uh, what makes him and them tick. So a fascinating conversation coming up. And two great books that I highly recommend for you. Uh, they are not yet available, but you can pre-order them now wherever good books are found. In particular, Amazon. You can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 288 with Miles Wolf, and you'll find a convenient link to get those pre-orders uh, ready to go so that you'll get them the moment that they are released. The first is his, Miles Wolf's, I guess you can call it an autobiography. It's called There's a Bulldozer on Home Plate, a 50-year journey in minor league baseball. It's a hoot. Um, it's everything that the title implies and more. And if you're a fanatic about minor league baseball and uh, and the story that you're about to hear, uh, do yourself a favor and pre-order that on Amazon. I think it comes out in late February of this uh, this new year. And then uh, the one that I've been waiting for, which is the final fourth edition and perhaps the most comprehensive version of something called the Encyclopedia of Minor League Baseball, the complete record of teams, leagues, and seasons, get this, from 1876 through 2019. Miles uh, Wolf uh, and his pal Lloyd, Lloyd Johnson, excuse me, uh, have been putting out this uh, compendium uh, for a number of years. This will be the fourth and, according to Miles, final edition of the Encyclopedia of Minor League Baseball. And if you are a completist, uh, in all things baseball, and in particular the minor leagues, and of course the independent versions of such, this is the book to get, the Encyclopedia of Minor League Baseball. That comes out, I think, in mid-March, but again, is also available for pre-order uh, at Amazon.com. And again, if you go through our web uh, link at our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, episode number 288, 
uh, will get a little uh, shekel or two of referral love for doing so. So uh, run, don't walk, and uh, click uh, click on to make sure that you get those uh, both of those books uh, the moment uh, they arrive. All right, we're going to uh, dispense with uh, our sponsor this week because we want to get right into this conversation. Uh, it's a fun one. Sit back, enjoy this. It's let's talk about some baseball. And, uh, and the independent versions and such, this is a very fun conversation with the one, the only, the godfather, the father, the grandfather, the, the progenitor, if you will, of minor league and independent baseball. Here's our conversation we had with Miles Wolf a couple of months back. Please, as always, enjoy. Now, minor league baseball has been around for you know, time and memoriam, almost as uh, as early as baseball itself. Um, and Lord knows we've got a lot to talk about and ground to cover with your your background in it. But for for people who don't know, and there are probably a few of them out there, uh, who Miles Wolf is, maybe a little bit of background as to almost like what's my line? Who tell us about your involvement in this minor league baseball thing because it's it's prodigious, uh, and and you've been at the game, so to speak, behind the scenes managerially for, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, growing up, it, it's what I wanted to do. Uh, after I got cut from little league for the third straight year, I figured I probably wasn't going to make the big leagues as a player. So I was growing up in a minor league town, Greensboro, North Carolina. And, uh, would go to their games and see how they were running it and thinking, well, I could do that better. And, um, you know, after college and everything else, uh, I ended up running minor league teams. Well, that, what, that, what, okay. So that was a dream from, from boyhood. That's, that's great. And you go through college and stuff, but I, I'm guessing as you went to college and, and started to ideate what you possibly might, think about doing as a career or as a living that baseball wasn't really kind of top of mind from a practical perspective. No, um, you know, specifically there were no sports administration courses there in, in, you know, in the United States, uh, when I went to college in the sixties. So there was no path to get, you know, into minor league baseball or any sort of baseball. Um, but, you know, one reason I, I went to college at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, one reason I went there is the Orioles were there and every spring I'd go down to their farm department and say, Hey, have you got any jobs? Uh, and they weren't about to hire me, but they were very polite and, you know, helped me and just said, you know, here's some names of people, you know, but you should know. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, it was just, you know, and then the Vietnam war was on and, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, let me go a year to graduate school because president Johnson had told me the light was at the end of the tunnel. And the war was going to be over shortly. And I thought, aha, I'll go to graduate school and, uh, you know, then I won't have to worry about the draft. But the war went on for another six or seven years. So after graduate school, I got my master's and 
history, uh, which didn't have much help. Um, you know, I, I went in the Navy, um, and, uh, went to officer candidate school and came out, you know, an ensign, but one of the things, my eyes, my, you know, I wore glasses and if you're want to drive a ship, you need good eyesight. So they put me in the supply corps, which teaches you the business aspects of uh, running a ship. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing as running a minor league club. So I was, I got lucky in that, you know, I spent three years in the Navy doing business and budgets and all of those things and got, got a business background. So when I got out, I could, you know, have some background. So when you're out, though, what do you start looking for? Is it do you literally, you know, say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to go find something in baseball finally? Or or was that were those business, you know, skills that that you were learning in the Navy, you know, kind of pointing you to, I don't know, something more, <laughs> I guess, practical or real, well, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I mean, I know all the. You know, when I went to the OCS, you know, all the guys that had gone to Wharton School of Business or these good business schools wanted to be in the Supply Corps. And here I'm a history major. And I don't know what the Supply Corps is, but they didn't get in. And I did because they were looking at it would lead them to good things. But, uh, no, it just it just, you know, again, you got to be in the right place sometimes. and. And then when I got out of the Navy, I just started knocking on doors and got a call from the Atlanta Braves. Can you come down for an interview? And uh, I was in baseball. And what did that mean? What was being in baseball kind of what did you think you might be getting into? And, and what was, if you will, offered to you? Because you, you're alluding to the fact that you know, I think it's it, it, it's lost on people today, right? That, that there's there's no like there's no like straight line path here, right? This is this you're clearly going off the board for fifty in the game of Jeopardy here. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, I went, flew down to Atlanta, interviewed Eddie Robinson, the former big leader, and he was farm director, and. Uh, Interestingly enough, he had been my mother's favorite player when he played for the minor league Baltimore Orioles, but that's not part of this story. Uh, but um, they needed a double-A general manager in their Savannah club. They had a new team moving to Savannah, Georgia. And, you know, as a, they had been hiring a lot of old minor league GMs with a lot of experience and hadn't been very happy with what they were getting. And they'd, prior to hiring me a year or two earlier, they'd hired some young guys, you know, in their mid-20s to go to some of their other teams and been very happy. So they were looking for somebody new, young, fresh that not, you know, there had been, what, 448 minor league teams in the late 40s. And by 1971, I think they were down to 106. So there were a lot of guys that were hanging on they weren't really good and they were looking for fresh blood 
And here I was, and they put me as the head of their double-A club. And the way minor league baseball was structured, I guess still kind of today, uh, but certainly then, was that the parent team, in this case the Atlanta Braves, they controlled all the players and all that kind of stuff, but the the other parts of the franchise, that was your responsibility, right? That's the business. Sure, but they were – the good thing is most minor league clubs were locally owned by community groups, and they actually owned their minor league teams outright because they didn't want to have to deal with local owners. So I was working directly for them, and um, as I say, it was – you know, I was in charge of all the business aspects uh, from getting the lease to, you know, running the concessions to hiring the grounds crew to doing everything that a minor league guy has to do. Uh, and, um, you know, I loved it. Loved it enough to really stand out, right? Uh, you're kind of burying the lead there, right? Uh, you're 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 a son of a of a former newspaper man, right? Uh, you you won an award from the Sporting News for for being uh, one of the top minor league managers or general managers in the country that year. Yeah, no, my first year I was the Double A GM of the year, um, and I don't want to downplay. I mean, it was a huge honor, and you know I loved it, but I had we had we basically had two good crowds of 10,000 that sort of made the year. And again, minor league baseball, early seventies, uh, you know, almost no team averaged a thousand people a game at the double a level. So, you know, it was a different era and, you know, I, I had some ideas and we worked hard at it. And, uh, it, as I say, it, it all, you know, it came together. We ended in last place or next to last place. And, uh, it wasn't a great team or anything like that. We had 13 rainouts cause we didn't have a tarp. Uh, but yeah, this, you know, the sporting news, you know, gave me that award. All right, so so I'm guessing you were hooked, but you kind of weren't, right? Because you you left after a couple of years after that, and uh, I, I it sounds to me, based on what I've read about your your, your background a little bit of, of the, from the book too, is that you kind of pulled in like two directions. You sort of have this uh, gnawing, and 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 now actually, uh, 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 you know, uh, executed if you will, love for the game and maybe the business aspects of it. Yet, sort of being pulled by this sort of, I guess, uh, belief that, you know, having gone to a, a stellar institution, a graduate degree under your belt, you know, that you should be, quote unquote, doing something more with your life, young man. And I, 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 I guess I'd love to get a little inside the, the id there and sort of get a sense of uh, how are you managing those two seemingly polarly different uh, thought processes as you uh, thought through and maybe f- felt your way through what was frankly the beginnings of a, really a baseball career. Well, you're right. I mean, when I went into baseball, I just wanted to prove that I could do it. You know, it, I wasn't looking at it as a career. It was, let me go show you there are good ways to run a ball club. Cause I said, I'd grown up in Greensboro 
and seeing GMs chasing little kids for baseballs, you know, and knowing, hey, that's not good PR, you know, um, that it could be done. But after three years, uh, I, you know, here with my Hopkins degree and, you know, I had a my master's thesis was published by Stein and Day and it got some commercial success. So I have these things that are my belt. Well, let me go get a real job. And so um, I quit the Braves and, you know, decided it's time to get a real job. And for the next six or seven years, I never found one. <laughs> well, but but you did things in and around, though, that kept you fresh around it, right? Like, Sure, sure. Um, you did some broadcasting. You, you, wrote, you wrote a novel, uh, which had something to do, I think, with – well, certainly North Carolina, and, and I'm sure a little bit of baseball sort of crept its way in there, and et cetera, right? I mean, you were still baseball was still part of your fabric, if you will, if not sure. outright well, paying the bills. You know, I was, you know, at one point going to write the great American novel, um, so would live at Savannah Beach, but about every spring my money would run out, uh, so there was always somebody that needed a GM, you know, one year in Anderson, South Carolina, they're fired. Their guy in mid season, I went up, um, the Braves and well, the GM at Richmond wasn't comfortable. He needed some help. And he said, well, you'd be the play by play, but come up and help. Um, you know, whereas I went to Jacksonville because the GM at Jacksonville had gone with the world football league. So, you know, oh, ding, kept, ding, ding, ding. That's an important little divot for us. Yes, the Jacksonville uh, Express, I think. Express, that there, you're right. It. Exactly right. Okay, well, uh, that's pretty good on your part. Um, so it was bouncing around pretty good. Uh, you know, I built up some credits with my years in Savannah. Uh, but, you know, with you know, work through the summer and at the end of the year say, in the summer, say thanks. I'm going back to Savannah Beach because there were some good things about living at the beach. Uh, and uh, and then the next spring, something else would come up in my way, and I'd take that and you know get enough money to get through the winter. Uh, but but yeah, um, I did play by play one year at Richmond, ran Jacksonville, ran Anderson. Um, uh, you know there was. Uh, an independent league starting in Texas, the Gulf Coast. I drove out there to try to hook with them, but it went out of business before I got to Texas. So I had to turn around. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, as I say, never found anything. And, you know, my novel got published and did okay, but not anything significant. And, it's finally in 1979, I said, well, I better get serious. And the only thing I know I really like to do is run ball clubs. Uh, so let me see what can happen there. And I, you know, I, I wanted to own a club. So, you know, I didn't have to work for owners who didn't know what they were talking about. So, uh, so I started looking 
Well, yeah. Well, they were paying me 600 a month, so it, nobody ever went broke with me working for them. Uh, but um, so uh, I thought, okay, let me own my own club. And I started looking at different, you know, leagues that needed something. And the Carolina League had been down to four clubs, was barely hanging on. They got six and uh, the the Braves wanted to put a club in that league, but they didn't want to own it. It was the first club they didn't want to own, but they wanted somebody that knew how their systems work. And here I was still available. So I got the Durham Bulls franchise was issued in the fall of 1979. Well, and, and I, you know, I, did you know at that time that well probably didn't right but i mean that that that's that's one half of the sort of um i guess catalyst that kind of just literally vaulted you you know uh uh kicking and screaming into this sport and into into the the world of minor league baseball probably for good um i the what what was your first like year or two of of the durham bulls experience because it seems like, I mean, obviously we people know the movie, right, by now, right? And and, right. and the romance around that stuff. I, I'm thinking though, those first days when you finally got the money together and some other probably some investors behind you that you had must have had a few moments of of afterthought that perhaps this may have been the craziest thing you've ever done and and or not, and you just knew what you were doing and you just needed to go forward. No, I mean it you know, I I raised, you went out and raised about $30,000 in capital to the franchise cost 2500 but, uh, you know, I needed money to get through the winter. So I went to family and friends and, hey, can you put a little money in it? And got around $30,000 capitalization. Fortunately, one of the people I knew knew a Hollywood producer named Tom Mount, who was from Durham. And Tom said, I'll put five grand in, in your club because he'd grown up in the town. And he he came to town in the winter before we opened. And he said, someday Miles will make a movie here. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? You know, I've never met him. And he's telling me he's going to make a movie. And I think, sure, sure. You know, glad to have it. You know, left it at that. But but by February, March, my money ran out. And uh, I went to my GM and I said, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news, I'm raising your salary from 700 a month to 900 a month. The bad news is I don't have the money to pay you. But if we ever get it, I'll, I'll pay you. And he accepted those conditions. Um, and we just, I'd wake up at four in the morning thinking of all the things we had to do. And, the, you know, we didn't have this. And the health department came in and said we needed an ice machine and they cost 2000 and I didn't have 2000 and just the world was crashing in and I didn't know what to do. But, you know, the, the league quietly owned loaned me a couple grand to get me to opening day. And, Everything clicked. Um, 
you know, and it's, you never know. I mean, I've been in enough towns. You, you never know until you opening day if people are going to show up. And Durham had never been a good baseball town prior to that or had a couple good years. But um, on opening day, we drew 4,000. The next, it was a Tuesday, the next two nights, we drew about 800, but I wasn't disappointed at all with 800 fans. Then Friday night, we drew nearly 3,000. And then Saturday night, we had a jacket night. And these cheap vinyl jackets that if you pull hard enough on the sleeve, it comes off. But it was jacket night. And, you know, I you know, I think we ordered a couple thousand, and you know, for kids. And you're still there? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm just. I'm. I'm amazed. Uh, I'm amazed you're able to do it this far. Yeah. Um. And by game was at seven thirty. By seven o'clock, all the jackets were gone. People were lined up a couple city blocks long to get in. And Pete Bach, my GM, and I were out there telling people we're out of jackets. We're running out of seats. Come back another day. Nobody left. Everybody still wanted to come. Um, cause we had banks in the outfield where people could just sit. And I think we had about 6,000 that night and, you know, it just, everything just exploded after that. Um, well, I want to, I want to come back to, to, uh, um, the, um, uh, the Mount investment, uh, and, and the, the circle of that story in a moment, but why do you think it clicked? Was it, did you have? I mean, obviously, you you had some luck in 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 getting you know the ice machine thing figured out and 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 all that and uh, uh, but but what was it? Was it promotional moxie? Was it uh, you had a good approach to getting the word out and and PR and messaging? Was it just uh, the the town was just desperate for something to do and this filled the gap? What was it? Do you think that led to this early and maybe surprising success? A little bit of all of that. Um, one, Durham was the third third city in the triangle. You've got Raleigh, the state capital, Chapel Hill with uh, the university there. And Durham was sort of the blue-collar, you know, cigarette factories or textiles. And those were all dying. So Durham was really struggling. You know, they're sort of like a Rust Belt city. But it had, there was energy in the city. Um, so it was a town ready, ready for something. They wanted to cheer Durham. I mean, that's what you want when you have a ball club. You can put the name of the city on your uniform. So that, that doesn't mean the city will accept it. And Durham was just so ready. And we also... I'm a newspaper guy and I love newspapers and we had two good competing newspapers. That's when everybody had a morning and evening and we had a great young sports writer, Ron Morris, who went to spring training, who, you know, wrote stories about us, you know, like we were a big deal. You know, we're on the equal with Duke, then Duke basketball, which wasn't before Krzyzewski got there. And, you know, Duke football, we were, we were part of that mix. Um, it was just, and the Braves sent us Dirty Al Gallagher as our manager. 
So we didn't have one of these colorless minor league managers who comes in and says, you know, I'm, I'm here to develop players, not win games. And, you know, he, he brought energy that here's this guy named Dirty Al. What's that about? Um, and it was just, Durham was a city that was ready and all the elements clicked, came together. Uh, and it, you know, it doesn't happen often. I mean, I'm a good operator, but I, I can go to a city and not do well, just as well as anybody else. But if the elements are there, you know, I think I can build on them. I mean, in Durham, I didn't know everything was going to be this good. Uh, but after that first week and we're asking people not to come in cause they can't find seats. I'd never done that before. And, you know, uh, we better handle this thing. Right. So beyond that though, t- tell us what happened the next year, because this is sort of the second part, I guess, of the, the catalytic uh, movement again, and it actually has some synergies when you look back on it, I'm sure. But, um, uh, this, uh, this, well, people now know as Baseball America, right? But before that, uh, it was known as something else. And it was, I don't know, was it a startup? Was it fledgling? Was Had it been around for a while? Tell us about the story about how you found out about it and, frankly, what you did about it and why it's important to this story. Well, we, okay, the first year was great. And, you know, your ego builds from there. And we're thinking... Well, we're pretty good. We should do other things. And a friend of mine on the West Coast, uh, a guy named Bob Friedis, called and said, there's this little baseball newspaper that's for sale. You should buy it because he's going to go out of business. And, you know, I I had seen the paper. You know, it had come a free copy. And there was something there. And the editor was a, a young man named Alan Simpson who had started it in his garage, had a circuit. He had maybe three or 4,000 subscribers. Um, and he wasn't going to be able to continue, but he, he had something. And, um, you know, he was producing it in Canada. And it was largely big league college. He was a big college fan, but college baseball. But he'd also run a team in Lethbridge, uh, Alberta. I hope that's the right province. Uh, but so uh, we, we had Dur- Al- Alan Simpson come to Durham and, you know, would he sell it? Basically, he'd sell it for debts. You know, he needed to pay his father back the money he'd learned. And he said, you know, I'll come to Durham and we can produce it here, but I have to have a visa. Well, I knew nothing about visas. Um, and my lawyer, who's Tom Bounce's father, the movie producer, his father, who was really good, said, look, I'm not an immigration specialist either. You should go to Charlotte, where the immigration office is, and find out exactly what you need to do. So I drove down to Charlotte and sit and fill out forms so you can meet with people. And then I handed the form in and just kept sitting. and maybe 45 minutes later a lady comes out and hands me a piece of paper that it's a visa for Alan Simpson and I didn't wasn't coming down to there get one 
but they gave it to me, you know, and I'm smart enough to know I better not ask any questions. Let me just get out of here because I've got this visa. So we got the visa for Alan. Um, and it's, he hadn't told his wife, who was nine months pregnant, that you know they were moving to North Carolina with two kids. Uh, but it all worked out. It was the all, he was called it the All America Baseball News, and we brought it to Durham, re, you know, retitled it Baseball America. And one reason we wanted it was the sporting news. I'd grown up with the sporting news as the baseball bible, and you know loved it to death but it was hadn't wasn't covering the miners anymore and we said well we'll go head to head with the sporting news and we did uh and you know over the next three or four years it grew and got to be tremendously respected in the baseball world so it was baseball america essentially became through your efforts and, and alan's efforts uh the bible if you will of, of minor league baseball right because the big entity, at least because Sporting News, certainly not Sports Illustrated, no, no major national publication was giving any real in-depth coverage of the, uh, the 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 base of the pyramid that was supporting the uh, the major leagues. Correct. Yeah. Um, nobody. I mean, Allen almost single-handedly made the United States aware of the draft. The baseball draft had been going on for fifteen years. And nobody knew it or understand it. And he started publicizing that. Um, you know, we we knew we had it made when after the first year we had Peter Gammons as one of our correspondents and Terry Pluto. And two, um, two sports, amazing names in, in sports writing. Yeah, two great writers who, you know, were doing a weekly column for us, but they were also doing it for the sporting news. And the sporting news says, Hey, you gotta, you know, you know, make up your mind. You can't write for both publications and both of them quit the sporting news and stayed with us. And we were paying $50 a week or something, you know, it wasn't for the money. They wanted to be with a pure baseball publication. And that's what we were, you know, we were, you know, writing about what was going on and what, you know, well, you know, we had, you know, major league columns and some great columnists, uh, you know, Dick Young and Tracy Ringlesby. And, but there was no other place for these people to get their name nationally. They were big in their home cities, but they wanted to be with Baseball America. Uh, and we, over the years, hired so many good writers that went on to major publications. And all the while, though, you're also, and I'm guessing this, the synergies sort of kind of presented themselves, right? I, I'm, I'm guessing you probably didn't have any foresight to say, oh, well, this publication and my new baseball team in Durham are going to have some synergistic uh, things that come out of it. But at the very least, I'm guessing all this editorial uh, stuff uh, kind of gave you some uh, some knowledge, some heads up about what was going on around the country and perhaps maybe some other franchises or teams or, or opportunities, which is, I think it was kind of what you did uh, by adding a few more to your, uh, I guess, call it a roster of, of teams. Yeah. I mean, there were teams that were struggling. Um, and again, the price of minor league franchises hadn't exploded. So 
over the next few years, we picked up Asheville, Butte, Montana, and Utica, New York. I mean, not certainly not great franchises, but we, you know, sort of straighten them up, you know, get them operating rationally and, you know, sell them in a year or two. Uh, so, um, you know, we got an Appalachian League club in Burlington, North Carolina, which we ended up keeping for 30 years. Uh, but, yeah, but it was just, we're in baseball and it, we got a chance to buy this team. Well, let's do it again. Um, you know, I had a good number two guy named Dave chase and I'd say, okay, Dave, you're in charge of Utica, find somebody that wants to go to Utica, New York and run a team. And we do that. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it was just, you know, it was, you know, <laughs> minor league baseball was coming back really big you know, in the eighties, uh, in seventies, it was at the, you know, pits, the nadir of, you know, minor leagues, you know, they were failing. Tal Smith was suggesting or promoting the do away with the minor leagues team system. Let's put all the teams in Florida, maybe keep triple a, but you know, he was pushing hard that the, the facilities were so bad and the operations were so bad. Why are we funding this operation, but in the early eighties, Larry Schmidt who started Nashville and then he did Greensboro and then, you know, Columbus, Ohio, I was doing play by play in Richmond in 77 and they built a new ballpark and they were drawing crowds that nobody had ever seen like that. You know, they were drawing half a million a year and Columbus, you know, again, here, Open my eyes. Look, you can do it. Um, so there were just so many good things happening in minor league baseball in the eighties that uh, you know we were riding this wave with everybody else, with the newspaper and with the teams. And uh, let's see where it'll go. No, no conflicts of interest per se, right? I mean, you, you know, by having multiple teams under. Or, or, or lather, rinsing, and repeating uh, the the same formula, and getting in and out of franchises and stuff, right? It's it's it. All the while, you're still holding on to the Bulls, right? And nobody. Yeah, well, the Bulls are. I mean, Bulls are making all this possible. You know, I had never had the, any backing, and so all of a sudden, the Bulls now own. You know, it wasn't Miles Wolf owning these teams; it was the Durham Bulls that owned yeah, Butte. I mean, the Durham Bulls owned baseball America, you know, it was, you know, the bulls were just, you know, an amazing, you know, backstop for all these operations and gave us good people. And we would send them, you know, do you want to go to Pulaski, Virginia? Well, I don't know. We'll go, you know, <laughs> so it was, it was just a great time. That's interesting. So I, that's, it's almost sort of, so they'd be the, uh, Almost a, a model, I guess, of of sort of what what, what today we know sort of as as private equity backed you know sports enterprises that have multiple team uh, you know uh, pieces of ownership or outright ownership and that kind of stuff. I mean, you're you're ahead of your time, maybe perhaps unwittingly, just knowing that hey, yeah, you know, I've got a I've got a good business enterprise going with the Bulls, but hey, you know, I've got some expertise and and now content and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that could be applied to other places in minor league baseball simultaneously as well, if not 
for the long haul like the Bulls, but at least, you know, uh, sharing and, and, and benefiting and maybe profiting as, along the way with this intelligence, this knowledge, this, um, this experience. Sure. I mean, we believed in baseball. We just believe if you do it right, people will come. And, you know, that, you know, the, all the things you'll hear at any seminar, clean bathrooms, good restrooms, you know, good food, all of that. But we believe the game, the game was good. Come out and see this, you know, and that's why we, we just had confidence. Okay. We can go into Pulaski, Virginia, and we're not going to make a lot of money, but we, you know, we can make a little, we can, you know, save the town, you know, uh, let's do it. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, you don't buy some of these franchises to make a lot of money, but it's, it's available. And, you know, sometimes leagues would come to us. Can you buy, you know, help us here? Sure. Um, it was just, just what we were doing. All right. Let's come back to that push pin that I, um, uh, put in the uh, bulletin board, the virtual bulletin board a few minutes ago. Uh, about Tom Mount, because um, not only was he an investor in the Bulls and I guess having been a local resident and sort of having a special sort of place in his heart for uh, the town, the, the the city of Durham and, and, and the Bulls franchise in particular and, and your efforts to, uh, I don't know, rehabilitate it or, or, or take it to the levels that you were, were taking it to. Um, tell us the backstory of what ultimately became the iconic movie that I think even you didn't expect to be such a dramatic success. Oh, no, no. Um, as I say, Tom in 1980, it said, we'll make a movie here someday. But, you know, but he's out producing a lot of movie, good movies for Universal, um, doing good things. And I don't I just read the Ron Shelton book on the screenwriter on how he came to write the screenplay and how it was, you know, how it all happened. Uh, but on our end, Tom just called one day and said, Hey, I've got this screenwriter who's got an idea for a, a script. I'd like to him to come to Durham and just get a, my, you know, feel for what's going on. Um, you know, and, and Ron Shelton had been a minor league player, had gotten as high as triple a in the Orioles organization. Uh, but it sort of left baseball when he, I think, was behind Bobby Gritch and was never going to get to the big leagues. And so he had been out writing scripts and all this. So he, he came to Durham to get back in that minor league field. And he must have been here a couple of weeks. And he would sit on the bench and, you know, talk to the players. And um, And Tom had never said, this movie has to be made in Durham. He was just looking for a good script. Didn't even, you know, contemplate where it would be made. But Ron Shelton fell in love with the old ballpark in Durham, the grittiness of it, the grittiness of the town, this old tobacco town. And he knew the the movie should be made there. So, you know, maybe six months later, says Tom, you know, calls, we're going to make the movie in Durham. Um, great. You know, I'm not I never knew anything about making movies, but, you know, and we helped out. We got uniforms. They used our uniforms, the visiting team we got from other Carolina League cities. 
you know, help them because the movie was done by Orion and they didn't believe it, didn't have a lot of faith in it. They were getting out of the eight, eight men out or what's the, the Chicago White Sox, Black Sox movie was coming out that same year. And they believed that was going to be their hit. And Bull Durham was on their, you know, not on their high list. So we, we were doing what we could to help. And the movie was filmed in the fall of either 86 or 87. And, um, it, you know, you know, we'd never heard of Kevin Costner who, you know, Sarandon, Susan Sarandon was just this movie name we knew and all of this, but, um, you know, we were doing all the things, in, you know, to make the baseball real. Ron Shelton certainly knew baseball, and on his end, uh, you know, there are not any of these phony scenes. They're real baseball scenes. But from my perspective, I didn't think they knew what they were doing. <laughs> you know, Not that I had any knowledge, but, you know, they – they wanted to get a big crowd for a game. So we wrote to all our season ticket holders and we're going to give out free hot dogs and come at two o'clock for the filming. So we got maybe a couple thousand there and they decided, Oh, let's make it a night scene. Well, I'd invited all these people for two o'clock and they said, don't give out the hot dogs now till at night. No. And so, you know, things like that, my GM Pete Bach, uh, was the baseball consultant. I mean, he was, we had hired Pete that spring. He, he was with the first GM in uh, Durham. Then he went to Hawaii to be the GM, of the Hawaii Islanders came back to Durham and we were putting Pete in charge of all the other operations we were doing. And we put him, okay, you're the baseball guy to help them, you know, get the bus, get, you know, all of that. But for one scene, where Millie gets married, the marriage scene, uh, they hadn't hired an actor. They had a costume, and the only person who fit the costume was Pete Bach. And so he became the minister, had to join the you know, Screen Guild very quickly so he could you know, pronounce the man and wife. So, as I say, it was sort of a disjointed production, and I sort of, well, let me stay away from this because I'll get frustrated. Um, and then the next spring they had the uh, premiere in Durham and, you know, we wore tuxedos and all of this. And I was just nervous. This is going to be embarrassing. Uh, and it wasn't, you know, I was, you know, but that first showing, you know, okay, I think this is okay. So Maybe a week later, my wife and I went to a little neighborhood theater where it was showing, and I was relaxed, and I just laughed, and wow, this is good. Um, but, yeah, um, but Ron Shelton had a good script. He knew baseball. Uh, you know, he got actors, you know, Kevin Costner, since then, has been had a great career, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins. Um, but yeah, uh, my early thoughts were this wasn't going to be much of anything. 
Well, but but it was it was uh, I, I guess a real sort of not only shot in the arm but sort of a lightning bolt of. But now, but in the backdrop though, you were already trying to move this franchise along further, right? I, you had designs of your what what league were you playing in? Double A at that point? Single oh, A? No, Cla- Class A Carolina League. Class A Carolina. Sorry. So you were, but you had already had designs of of trying to upgrade the team to higher levels, like Triple A around that time too, right? I mean, you were... Um, not really. Um, you know, we we were trying to get a new stadium. Okay, uh, sure. The ballpark had been built in 1939, and, you know, it was totally inadequate for the crowds we were getting. You know, people lined up to go to the restroom. You know, we kept building new concession stands. Um, we still couldn't serve everybody. You'd go underneath the grandstand and could pull, pull rebars out of the concrete and break them with your bare hands because they'd rusted. Um, the ballpark, you know, we needed a new facility. Uh, and by the way, this was already this was already starting before the movie even hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but the movie just pushed us over the top. You know where we were having struggling handling the crowds after the movie, there was no way to take care of the crowds. Uh, you know, it, it just, people wanted to come and, uh, you know, we, we set up an 800 number to sell our souvenirs so people could call in and get it a hat or whatever. Cause there was no internet to order anything on. So we were just, we opened a store in the mall to sell our goods. Uh, so everything was booming, but we've got this old, you know, depression era ballpark that, that needs to, you know, can't handle it. And the city was getting so much good publicity from, from the ball club and everything was going on. And Raleigh wanted a team then they didn't want it earlier. And we were fighting to keep, the Bulls, the only team in the triangle, you know, we were sticking up for Durham the whole time. And, but guys, it's time for a new ballpark. And, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, so, um, and that's what drove me to sell the team. And into the hands of, of capital broadcasting and, and the Goodman family and, and, um, and all that. But, but I look, I mean, that's, Still, you, that that's a hell of a ride from where your Durham experience began. I mean, now you're coming out of that, and um, what you're looking for other things to do, though, right? Other other teams, other other things in baseball. You even got the ice hockey after that. You want to explain a little bit of that detour? Sure. Um, again, I, I I mentioned Pete Bach, and he was there to bring in new projects. And the East Coast Hockey League was then starting to grow. And, you know, a friend of ours, Blake Cullen, who had been with the Chicago Cubs, was running the team there. And he said, guys, this is just like running a baseball team. You don't need to know anything about hockey. You just need to know how to market and take care of fans and all of that. And so Pete and I said, well, why not? And there was an old arena in in Raleigh called Dorton Arena that was built 
really well they had a cow washing pit out in front so you know for an agricultural fair and all of that sort of thing it wasn't built for ice hockey but we were able to fit one in there and again it clicked you know again raleigh was ready and then the hockey and the you know there were many transplanted northerners in the triangle by the early 1990s and we you know the the hockey team did just amazingly well for three or four years but that's but but hockey's not baseball or did it not matter to you i didn't matter um i really enjoyed it i didn't know anything about it you know so um i was always made people would skate and hit each other and still stand up you know it was and it was like running a ball club i mean the same principles and we put pete who'd been gm of the bulls but pete is the gm of the raleigh ice caps um and first year we had an awful team because we didn't know how to get players but it didn't matter um and i mean what happened is we got so successful is that at first the american hockey league decided they wanted to come in and hockey and Hockey has no territories. Baseball has territories that protects you. That if you put, have a ball club in Durham, nobody else can put a ball club in Durham for a well now a 35-mile radius. And hockey had none of that. And they were building a new arena for the basketball team in Raleigh. Uh, and originally the architects and the athletic director met with us. We met with architects and we were going to, go into this new 15,000-seat arena, and it was great. And then they stopped talking to us because the American Hockey League came down and said, you want us? And then the NHL came in and said, whoa, if this is coming in, this this great new arena is coming, we want to be in it. So, you know, I knew I can't fight this group, so I I sold it to a, a political guy who thought he could work the politics but couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I, once again, you're kind of ahead of the curve, right? I mean, the, the Raleigh Ice Caps, obviously, you know, the Carolina Hurricanes now have been there for years, much to the chagrin of Hartford Whaler fans, uh, but I digress. Um, but you you kind of sowed the seeds, if you will, for uh, hockey in a market which I would argue historically wasn't sort of a very uh, major pro ice hockey hotbed really then no no i mean as with many of our ventures people didn't think they would go um you know we had to take a puck to the sports editor because he'd never seen a hockey puck he didn't know what they were doing and he assigned the golf writer to cover the team because we were quietly told he wanted the golf writer to quit and he didn't think he'd stay covering hockey and he ended up loving it um yeah, no, I mean, there were not a lot of people who were saying, wow, this is a great idea, but the fans wanted it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, a lot of just being at the right place at the right time. You never know. But um, we thought, well, let's give hockey a try. And for four years, it was a great run. 
All, right, all the while, though, you're still interested in baseball, and I want to go back to um, uh, this other team that that actually you wound up holding on for for quite some time, uh, but we kind of overlooked was was uh, Burlington. You want to tell us the story of that and why that sort of I don't know was in your portfolio perhaps for for the longest period of time. Um, any place there was an old ballpark. I love old ballparks. We wanted to see, can you put a team there? And Burlington is just 30 miles from Durham. And, and it's, I, I'm sorry, Burlington's in Virginia or is it North Carolina? North Carolina. Okay. But, uh, but close to the border? Midway, yeah, it's midway between Greensboro and Durham. Uh, and when I was growing up in Greensboro, occasionally we'd go over to Burlington when they were playing the Greensboro Patriots or the Greensboro Yankees. So I knew the town and, you know, it was an old textile town, uh, but, you know, here they had this old ballpark and, well, let's try to put a team there. I mean, why not? Uh, and I think we started looking about 1982, met with the, well, I went to Jack McKeon, who lived in Burlington, and Jack, let's see what if we put a team here? Who do I talk to? And he gave me the name of the mayor pro tem and the guy was enthusiastic and, you know, well, let me find a league. Well, the problem was again, territorial Greensboro didn't want a team that close 25 miles. Um, and they were in the South Atlantic league and they were able to block it. And it was maybe, we were talking uh, talking to the, the Appalachian League, but we weren't what was in, called in their footprint. They were mostly in mountain towns. Uh, the Cleveland Indians had uh, Dan O'Brien, the GM there, was interested, but he was going to put a club in, and I won't name the city, but they were ready to go there until – he went there to get things set and the mayor told him, Oh, love to have you here, but we can't house any black ball players. Um, so that was a pretty negative thing for the Indians. And that's Dan then came to us quickly. Can you give us a backup? Cause this was late in the winter. And then I went to the mayor pro Tim and can we get a ballpark built in three months or the old one refurbished because it was rotting and, it was dangerous, but, and we got it in the Appalachian league. And again, it did well. Uh, Cause again, Burlington was ready. Burlington had had baseball in the Carolina league through 1970 and it died. And now people were ready for baseball again. Uh, and the town, the town, you know, I wouldn't want to say exploded, but just did very, very well for us. You know, you know, a little rookie league that had never really drawn well, and you know they didn't promote, and we we're there promoting and doing all these things, and I think helped the league say, oh, well, if they can do that in Burlington, we can do it here in Pulaski or Bristol or wherever. So, so Burlington. You know, was as I say, it was just a rookie league played a half season, but it was just a nice little addition to our stable of clubs. 
I, I'm just fascinated by this because <clears throat> you just, I mean, one looks at your at your resume and and just the teams just keep keep on coming, right? I mean, uh, you had uh, 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 a team in Bangor, Maine, that you were thinking about moving to Quebec City in in Canada. Uh, you had uh, uh, you were involved with the Northeast League in New York. I mean, you know, just. On and on and on. Um, but I guess I, I, we could go on forever. I, I guess I just <laughs> want to sort of do a cul-de-sac around maybe sort of, and I guess I could overgeneralize here, uh, is sort of this, I guess, sort of move or evolution, if you will, into uh, independent league uh, forms of minor league baseball. Now, I, to, to, the, to the general sports fan or, or even passing baseball fan, I'm not sure there's a real full understanding of what at least until very recently, and we'll get to that at the end. That'll be our last wind-up question. I think you'll know what that'll be. Um, there, there, there. Most of the made minor league teams that we've talked about, and 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 it, the the system is known for, are related to, uh, or or overseen by, or even owned by until fairly recently, the the major league teams uh, above them, right? But there's this independent dynamic that. It almost seems like you gravitated to. Can you explain the difference? And do I have that right that independent league baseball became more of a fancy for you in later years? Yeah, no, it did. I mean, it's it would be my first love now, if you would. But and not to get too technical or historical, but all all baseball was independent until the late 1920s, early 1930s, when Branch Rickey formed the first farm system. You major league teams originally just would buy a good player at AAA and the AAA teams would buy good players from AA and all of that. So the concept of teams without major league help was the way baseball used to be. But by the early 1950s, nobody could survive without the major league help because the major leagues were then paying almost all the salaries in spring training and all of that, and they had the ability to get players. So by 1960, there were no independent teams left. Uh, occasionally, a team would not be able to get a working agreement, and it would it would have to operate one year as an independent until it could get a working agreement. But these were, you know, far, you know, not, didn't happen often. And it wasn't good when you didn't have a working agreement because you tended to go out of business, but sort of my guru, a guy named Bob Friedis, who I mentioned earlier was a product of the old school, where you didn't need major league help. He'd started in the forties and he believed that the concept of independent baseball without major league help. And he had been president of the Northwest league. And in 19, I want to say 73, he, he had convinced a movie actor, Bing Russell to put a team in Portland, Oregon, which had lost their AAA club, and he went in the rookie Northwest League. Well, and, I know, I know where this is going. Go ahead. Yeah, it's going well. It goes to the movie, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Um, 
Bing Russell, I mean, again, clicked. Here, Portland had had AAA, and they hadn't supported it, and there are lots of reasons for that. But they come in with this brash guy out of Hollywood who signs guys like Jim Bouton and Louis Tian or whatever. And Frank the Flake Peters was his manager. And wow. And I'm looking at this from the East Coast and thinking, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to be in baseball. When I'm running an affiliated club, I'm not really doing anything in baseball. I'm selling peanuts and popcorn and, you know, being a facility manager. But I saw what Bing Russell had done and actually went to the, I was trying to put a ball club in Victoria, BC, which doesn't, we don't need to go there. But, um, but I drove out to the West coast and he just takes me in to see Bing Russell. And he's one of these larger than life guys. It's just, you know, you're captivated. So that's, that's when I figured that's what I like. That's what would be more fun than an affiliated team. Cause one of Friedis's theories was, you know, people want to see a team win, you know, and you have in a minor league affiliated team, the big league club doesn't care if you win or lose. They want to develop their shortstop. who got 150,000 to sign. So, you know, it, it was, you were at the mercy of the big league club when you're running a minor league team. So, you know, Bing Russell does this and it's amazing, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm still with out club, et cetera, then, but then later on, one of my investors in the bulls van Schley puts an independent team in Salt Lake city, Utah, because they weren't able to get a working agreement. And again, it explodes the same principle. Let's try to win. They won 26 straight games in the rookie league, pioneer league. I mean, it was unfair because they were signing double AA, A, triple A vets to play against rookies, but the fans at Salt Lake city didn't care. They wanted to see their team win. So uh, this, this thread is running through baseball of independent and but I'm sorry, but most of those teams, though, right, are kind of they come and go, right? I mean, the Mavericks maybe was probably the maybe the most successful uh, maybe during that period sure, or five years, then, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that inspiration's got to be a little little worrisome because they're not necessarily guaranteed to be successful, even though they're exploding as you're mentioning these these teams when they show up. Yeah, but up. just one city, you know. I mean, that's where and we'll get to it, you know. And these are major markets. You know, Portland's a AAA market. Salt Lake City is. So they've got the population base to do it. And again, they get successful enough that a big league club wants to get in there and, you know, put their players in this because there are lots of fans and they like, you know, being having fans and all of that. So these, you know, the, the Mavericks in the Salt Lake City don't last long as independents, but they show what can be done. Um and after after I sold the Bulls, when we lost the lost the referendum for a new ballpark, um, I sold the Bulls, and you know that gave me a big cushion financially because uh, it, it, I sold it for a lot more than the twenty five hundred that I bought it for, 
and I could start doing some things. And that was 91. And I still had Baseball America. And, you know, I was publisher, but, you know, when they got strange phone calls, they direct them to me, you know, minor league questions. And within a month, I got a phone call from somebody in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. How do we get baseball? And then uh, one from Duluth, Minnesota. We'd like baseball up here. And then Thunder Bay, Ontario. And I don't know where the hell Thunder Bay is. So I'm taking out my map while I'm talking to this guy and saying, well, it's close to Duluth. Um, You know, maybe there's something out there. And the idea for an independent league starts to grow. Uh, You know, can this be done? So I I travel out there. I find a ballpark uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, seven miles from the Metrodome. You know, you can't fight the big leagues. Well, let's try it. You know, and I... You know, go to Winnipeg, but they're not ready. But Rochester, Minnesota has a nice little ballpark. And then I start calling some of the good operators in baseball. Hey, you want to try an independent league in Minnesota, the old Northern League? And uh, I get people that had had to operate independent clubs. And they're all excited you know you've got a mike veck who's you know been running a club in florida marv goldklang who's a part owner of the yankees harry stavronos who's been running the bad news bees in san jose um you know there there were these crew of people and i had six cities and we start well what city do you want what city do you want and you know marv goldklang who had he and Mike Vec owned some really successful teams had had a va- bad flight to to Erie, Pennsylvania, and he said, look i'll I'll put a team, but I don't want to have to change planes. Well, the only direct flight from Marv's home in New Jersey is to Minneapolis, St. Paul. So Marv, you want St. Paul? Sure, I didn't think I'd find anybody willing to do St. Paul so close to the uh, Metrodome. And we got six owners, and again, the timing was right. We had good operators, six good owners. We had cities that hadn't had baseball for 20 years. Um, And, you know, the Minnesota Twins were convinced we were going to fail by July. You know, Andy McPhail said it's just beer league baseball, you know. And we were getting players like Leon Bull Durham and uh, former ex big leaguers wanting to play in our league because there was nowhere to play. You know, you could go to Mexico or maybe Japan, but here, you know, there was a pitcher named Jeff Bittaker who had pitched three or four years in the Twins, who I knew from the Carolina League, called up and wanted to play in the league. This is before we started. So all of a sudden, Gosh, we're getting, you know, we're getting really good players here. Uh, And so, again, everything fell into place. I mean, it was was a phenomenal first year. Pedro Guerrero, four National League batting championship. 
was at Sioux Falls, um, oil can Boyd went to Sioux city, uh, cause they wanted to play baseball. And that was, you know, we were paying, I think Leon Bull Durham made 1400 a month, an ex big leaguer. Uh, but you know, the towns, the cities, the area, the old Northern league was an area that had been once great for baseball and it, it was ready again. And you kept doing it. You did the Northeast League later on, and 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 then kind of, uh, uh kind of combined them, and then cross played them, and then and then those led it to other ones like the American Association of Professional Baseball, and uh and uh the the Can Am League, I guess, absorbed some of the Northeast League stuff, and uh, so independent baseball. I mean, it's ironic that you would create leagues <laughs> for independent teams. Yeah, I mean, I sort of switched from running teams to running leagues um it just you know i've got to you know we've got to get put put good people here you got to put good people there you know we you know we saw the northeast league was ready to fail it, it was in places like yonkers and cities you don't want to be in and you know i that's what got me to quebec city probably the town i've loved the most of all my baseball ventures was Quebec, uh, pure French speaking. Um, and the only way I could operate there is my wife, Michelle grew up in Northern, Northern Maine in a French speaking town. The town's name is Frenchville. So that probably follows. Um, and so we moved the whole family up to Quebec city for a year, put the kids in school, up there and set up a team that just two nights ago I was watching them win the championship in the Frontier League and the place was packed and you know it's the things we had started 22 years ago they're still doing the same mascot this tradition you know you build up traditions and I so love Quebec City and I love the town and the baseball uh and, and as I say of all the you know I've had some great towns but that's been my favorite and the the French fans are just so enthusiastic and you know joie de vivre. I mean it's it's a tremendous place to watch a baseball game all right, let me ask you a couple of sort of wrap-up or round-up questions. Okay, so, okay. so number one, this is, I mean, this is great. Our audience is going to eat. Our audience is going to eat this up. So don't don't you worry. Um, so uh, let me sort of j ask questions. So how did how did Major League Baseball and the Minor League Baseball establishment look at you and that of Independent League Baseball during this time, the '90s and 2000s and stuff? Were they encouraging, discouraging? Worse than that? Major League Baseball wasn't encouraging. Um, but here was a free source of talent. You know, okay, you've got their farm clubs, but here are players, most of the players were signing had been signed by affiliated teams earlier. And it's sort of a second chance league. And pitchers, you know, learning to control their breaking pitch. And so... Early on, they they always recognized our contracts, so that gave us you know some validity there that they would 
if they wanted a player, they would pay at that point, they paid $3,000 for a player, you know, to go to double A AA or triple A. They needed fill-ins. It wasn't like they were, we did have players go directly to the big leagues, but by and large, you know, okay, we need a double A shortstop. Let's go to the independent leagues rather than have to go to Venezuela. Uh, so the big leagues, other than the twins, you know, we're, you know, okay, we'll, we'll let them go where they're playing baseball. The affiliated minor leagues hated us because they had a monopoly, you know, and the prices of their teams were just skyrocketing. And here we're coming in and saying, you don't need to, you know, pay millions of dollars and have more fun with an independent club. So the affiliated minors fought us at every direction. One of the things they did that did hurt us was you couldn't own teams in affiliated and independent. They wouldn't let you do that. Um, So we were cut out of getting some good ownerships because good ownerships is the key. Um, but it's kind of a kind more, of a blackballing, if you will. Uh, people maybe yeah, blackballing, who, who, yeah. But Marv Goldklein and Mike Veck, who had been in before this rule was instituted, were grandfathered. You know, okay, we can't, you know, backdoor and say you can't own it now. But other than that, so that for me was what hurt the most, as I I couldn't always get the good ownership that I needed. But yet, uh, but it also allowed you to be a little bit more sort of uh, promotionally uh, unchained, if you will, right? Uh, Unbounded and the more fun league. Yeah. No, I mean, that was it. Independent baseball is fun. And, you know, Mike Veck had the pig that took the baseballs to the umpires. And, you know, they were, uh, you know, he'd sign Minnie Minoso for one at bat to so he could play in five decades. So, you know, no, I mean, there were some stupid independent teams that did, you know, traded a player for a Muddy Waters album or something, you know, but you could do these things that, you know, and and I think by and large, independent baseball respected the game. You know, they didn't make a mockery of it uh, because some people like to, but so particularly in the Northern League, you know, Mike would do all these crazy promotions, but it wouldn't take away from the game. You know, he he understood the game. It's got to go on, you know, with the, the way it always has. But, uh, you know, he'd do a lot of crazy stuff around the game. All right. So here, here's, here's – uh... Uh, a question then that kind of sort of brings it into into relief. Um, and I kind of maybe signaled it a little bit earlier, but we all know what's happened over the last two years with Major League Baseball, uh, shall we say, formalizing or backwardly integrating uh, the minor league baseball system, uh, getting rid of, uh, you know, some of the quote unquote dead wood as part of that. And, and I guess more authoritatively harmonizing the the minor leagues, even to the point of even futzing with uh, some of the legendary league names for whatever reasons. Um, I, I think I kind of have a general and, uh, idea of what you're going to, how you're going to answer this question. But but what do you think of this evolution, if you will, or this change to the structure and the relationship between major and minor league baseball? And, and I don't know, making it almost uh, like a 
like a subsidiary company, if you will, of the big boys? Yeah. Um, well, to begin with, the big leagues cut 42 minor league teams. Well, in my mind, that's a crime. I mean, you're you're supposed to be the protector of baseball, and you're taking baseball away from 40 cities that have, you know, had it for years. You know, is that the way to make it the national pastime? And, yeah, you make the Appy League a rookie league and, you know, subsidize it a bit, but that's not pro baseball. You know, they – and the – the independent leagues became what they call partner leagues and they got nothing for it, but now they're under control of the commissioner's office. And I, the commissioner's office is a bunch of lawyers who don't love the game. They're there cause it's good money and they get the big deal. It, But, you know, so I think, you know, I, think major league baseball the the people running it are not good for baseball and that you take baseball from 40 cities is is a crime do you think independent baseball can take over those places and fill in those gaps or is that essentially being quashed as part of this process either literally or not they've made the pioneer league an independent league and again, they're subsidizing it to their credit. But independent that's, that's baseball. That's an affiliate, right? And it's an affiliated league, right? Not a part of the system, right? Yeah, it's a partner league because um, they were getting so much political uh, chaff from, you know, all of the, from doing this. But independent ball is so expensive to run because you've got to pay the players. You've got to pay the spring training. You've got to pay the workman's comp. And that's what, when we started it, we didn't realize how expensive it was to run an independent league and uh, clubs. So, uh, you know, you just worry about the long-term viability. You know, if you're not tied to MLB, you've got more freedom. But now, you you know, you can be outrageous. You can do interesting things with the game. Uh, so, you know, I've got to be just cautiously optimistic about independent independent game because of the financial realities. Uh, you know, that now, you know, the lawyers are suing the players to get, you know, money based on the time they're on the bus and all of this and well you're just killing baseball. I mean it's not that's not gonna help players. It's gonna kick more, you know, there won't be let there'll be less and less players signed and you'll only have ten rounds of the draft and those kids, the Mike Piazza's who was a fifty fifth round draft pick, you know, becomes a Hall of Famer and the Brett Butlers and all these guys that made it on desire, not on this pure tools. So, you know, to cut the draft, to not give kids a chance, you know, and they're not looking for the money, you know. Yeah. Can they survive on 800 a month? Barely, but they don't care. Just give me one chance. Give me a couple months and I'll prove to you, you know, I am a good baseball player. So we're losing all of that. Uh, 
yeah, but uh, yeah. Well, just, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, no doubt. And um, but you know, here locally in Chicago, you know, I've gone occasionally and watched the uh, the Butch Hobson uh, managed uh, Chicago Dogs out at Impact Field. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, still, still hanging it out there, and and it's it's in a major city, right? It's obviously Rosemont, which yeah, is well, that's suburb, it. Right, I mean, but... the St. Pauls, the Chicago's, the uh, Long Island Ducks, the the you know the big leagues took three of the great independent franchises: St. Paul, uh, the, the the Houston market when uh, Sugarland, and uh, New, Northern New Jersey club all to the affiliated baseball because they were doing so well. Uh, so they took, you know, in this latest thing, the best independent clubs, which is going to hurt because St. Paul is the magnet city for the upper mid Midwest. And you hate that, but ownership, if somebody's going to give them a triple a club, I mean, financially you got to do it, but, uh, yeah, but, 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 you know, you see the Chicago Dogs, which are great new stadium. The great new stadiums have been such a, you know, you look at the American Association, you know, Winnipeg, a great stadium, Fargo, a great stadium, Chicago, a great stadium. I love the ballpark in Lincoln, Nebraska and Kansas City. You know, these are, these are great, great ballparks and they're in major markets too, uh, yeah, well, it's it's also it's also part of the sort of real estate dynamic of pro sports these days too, right? So having a smaller minor league stadium, you know, buttressed by or or surrounded by other sort of uh, attractions and whatnot, make it sort of year round, if you will. And and I guess like in the in the Chicago's the uh, and the Kansas cities of the world, right? It's also uh, it's a great differentiator from the big league team down the street, right? Because you know what that dynamic is, you know the prices of those, uh, you know the uh, uh, you know the the kind of commitment that's needed to go to a game or season tickets or half of that, but you know you don't you don't need to necessarily give all that thought and 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 get out a spreadsheet to figure out how to go to a dogs game, right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, it was part of the success of the St. Paul Club. You know, one of the things you know we were playing in the dome, and the fan was saying, "I'm waiting for a rain out. I want a rain out just to sit in the rain at a ball game." You know, I mean, it was. You know, it was fun going to a big league game. It's probably not a lot of fun always. I mean, it's a great event. and You're awed by the stadium and all of that. But just to sometimes go to a minor league game and just enjoy enjoy the game for what it is. All right. A couple of quickies and then I'll let you go, I promise. And you can promote, too. Okay. Um, okay, okay. Just random question. Uh the Senior Professional Baseball Association and the late that that year and a half uh, thing, did that ever attract your interest at all? The 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 uh, you know major leaguers of the of past playing in in the in the winter during uh, uh, in Florida and and later in the, in the Southwest, or did that not uh, attract you at all? No, um, I mean I what I love to say about the independent game is the intensity of the players. This is their last shot. If they don't make it here, they're not going to make it at all. So you go to an independent game and the intensity for me is a lot more than an affiliated game because those guys, the kids that got the most money are 
trying not to get themselves hurt, hurt for so they may not dive for that ball because once they get to the big leagues, they can start diving then. Um, so, you know, they, it was just a old timers game in Florida. Uh, and I'm not a fan of the Florida markets for baseball. They have all the baseball they need in spring training and the college games. So, you know, I'd rather go to a Fargo or a Thunder Bay or, you know, a city that needs baseball. Uh, and the Florida cities didn't need it. Yeah, that that retirement idea makes a lot of sense, despite the names, right, which would probably bring some attraction because people remember their names and the and the, and the teams yeah. they played for and all that kind of stuff. But the nostalgia and the slower pace and, yeah, I, I can see where it's a tough sell, especially when you're you're trying to look through you know, rose-colored glasses and, and remember these people in their prime, and there clearly weren't. Yeah, yeah. How about, how about uh, um, last random question, out of all the teams that you owned or were related with or just, you know, even were in leagues that you competed against, is there any team name that pops into your head as being the most original or bizarre or um, intriguing you know, as a team name? I always like the Thunder Bay Whiskey Jacks. The uh, Thunder Bay the Whiskey, Whiskey Jacks. And the whis- a Whiskey Jack was a type of jay, a bird, that uh, would, when the area was being settled, would come and steal food out of human hands. You know, they said they had, the birds had whiskey courage. So the Whiskey Jack was the name of a bird indigenous to Thunder Bay area, and uh, I always just, I like that one for some reason. You know, I, I don't like the cutesy names. Uh, you not know, not the, a big Savannah Bananas fan? Yeah, although <laughs> they've done a great job. Uh, and that's half, if half you call it, it baseball, but, yeah. Uh, the Winston-Salem Warthogs I hated. You know, what does that have to do with Winston-Salem? Um, you know, I picked the Bulls because that was the traditional name. You know, I haven't picked, you know, unique, uh, what I call the cutesy names. I'm not a fan of that. It does sell souvenirs, but I want to sell baseball, too. Yeah, you can definitely tell the contrived ones, especially when you smash two words together that have no relation to each other. Yeah. And you don't capitalize or you do. I never get, is that capitalized or not? You know, yeah. Sometimes tough to figure out. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's get you into promotional mode. Um, you've got two things coming up uh, as we release this book, release this book, we'll release this episode a little closer to, to both of them. Uh, why don't you first start with uh, the memoir and then uh, tell us about uh, this other thing, which is kind of a labor of love, I guess, at this point but was actually an outgrowth of Baseball America. It's a compendium, and it is, it's the it's the Bible, if you will, uh, the encyclopedia of all the teams. But first, the memoir. Tell us about the name. And um, I'm guessing this is just scratching the surface, this conversation of what's in that book. Yeah. Um, the name of the book is There's a Bulldozer on Home Plate. And when I was running the Northeast League, uh, owner hadn't, paid his rent for the stadium and the mayor went and parked a bulldozer on home plate to keep them from playing. Um, so 
you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the history of independent baseball. I really wanted to, you know, I started off doing a history of independent, but I'm so involved that it became a memoir. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just, and you know, the light, some of the interesting things that have happened. Uh, and you know, also at the end, I, I sort of list all the players who played 10 over 10 years of independent baseball. Just, I'm always amazed, you know, that guys will spend 15 years in the independent leagues and they're not making much money just from the love of the game. So, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, when they, they always ask you where you're going to get players. Well, the players are out there, you know, you you have to sort of beat them off with a stick because there's so many guys who want to play professionally and the good ones keep playing because they, you know, you got to tear the uniform off them type of thing. So the bulldozer on home plate, hopefully it's a good read. Um, I, I think so. And the other is the encyclopedia of minor league baseball. It's, this is the fourth edition. We published the first three editions through baseball America, which is again, as you said, just sort of a compendium of every minor league team of every minor league league, you know, the leaders, the standings, you know, it's sort of a reference. It is a reference book. If you want to say, gosh, who was managing Salt Lake city in 1955? Well, you know, you go right there, you know, how many people did they draw? So, uh, and it goes through 2019, which, I view sort of the end of minor league baseball as we knew it, because for the first 125 years, it was run by the National Association. There was a parent organization, and the big leagues have done away with that. They now control the minors totally. So, And they did away with a lot of the league names. They may have brought them back, but we thought we got to come out with this one final edition because the miners, as we know it, as they've been governed, are done with. And so here's the final edition of the history of minor league baseball. Uh, and as I say, it's uh, McFarland Publishing is doing both books. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm the co-editor with Lloyd Johnson of the Encyclopedia. And, you know, it's as you say, it has been a labor of love, but I love the history of minor league baseball and all the cities, you know, and the evolution of it. It's, you know, it's sort of a fascinating industry to look at. All right, there you go, friends. Time to get the books and learn all about the fascinating stories of all those teams that we talked about and plenty more. Uh, the books you should get. Uh, let's pre-order them, shall we? They come out uh, in the uh, the weeks ahead. Uh, the first is the Miles Wolf uh, autobiography, I guess you could call it, or certainly a memoir. There's a bulldozer on home plate, a 50-year journey in minor league baseball. That comes out, um, according to Amazon, on February 28th. Uh, of this year. So depending on when you're listening to this episode, it is either available for pre-order now on Amazon.com 
or is available now if you're listening after that date. Um, and again, if you go to our website at goodseatstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 288 with Miles Wolf, you'll find a link. So click it for God's sakes and uh, give us a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that. And of course, you'll also want to make sure you get uh, the pre-order in place uh, if you're listening to this before March 15th of this year. Afterwards, of course, it's available now. And that is the Encyclopedia of Minor League Baseball, the fourth edition, the complete record of teams, leagues, and seasons from the years spanning 1876 to 2019. The last, the final, the fourth edition, Miles Wolf and Lloyd Johnson co-authoring that tome. And again, available on March 15th, but pre-orderable now on Amazon.com. And again, our uh, episode listing on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, number 288. Just click on that link. And uh, we thank you for giving us a couple of pennies and nickels and maybe a dime or two of referral uh, goodness uh, for doing so as well. While you're on our website at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, you will see, of course, every single stinking episode we've ever done of this show. Uh, Lots of links to books and those kinds of things, too. If you enjoy those, uh, by all means, do so. Uh, the best way, of course, to make sure that you get every episode of this thinking little show is to subscribe or follow us wherever you get podcasts. We are available just about everywhere you can do so. So what are you waiting for? If you haven't done that already, by all means, do so. You can send us email if you'd like. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can also follow us on social media, of course. We're on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. We are on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And on Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Our thanks to Jerry Payne for turning in another fine episode for us this week. We appreciate uh, his tolerance and patience and uh, professionalism, as always. And we thank you, of course, for listening, giving us all the support we've uh, uh, ever wanted and more and lots of great stuff coming up for you in the weeks ahead. Please stay tuned. Check your feeds and uh, we'll look forward for uh, another fun filled episode coming up very shortly next week. Thank you for listening. Take care and happy new year once again, everybody. Bye bye.